It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. everybody. Welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Grateful to have you join us on this Thursday afternoon. How are you, my friend? Wow, sleepy. There you go. <laughs> people, people who've been listening for any, any length of time, they're like, he's probably sleepy. Let's you, just get sleepy. You know what I need to start asking you? I, this is my bad. I should have asked you, how are you other than tired? Oh. Or you are tired and fatigued. <laughs> tired and weary. Sleep deprived. Other other synonyms. No, no. other than that, I'm pretty good. How are you doing? <laughs> I actually just told you recently, I like, uh, in the, right before we went on, it's like, I feel tired, but I, I don't feel like I could tell you that. No, but you can. You can. Tired is relative. You're tired. We can both be tired. My tired's the, from being old. Yours is from having kids. Yeah, it's not like this radio studio only allows for one tired person and the other person has to relinquish their tired. I'm awake. I'm awake. <laughs> Just by proxy, it's like, it's like when you're driving the car with with like your spouse through the night, and like one of you has to be awake, uh-huh. the other can sleep, and the other, I got to drive the car today. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's thank the Lord. Uh, anyway, you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. That's the Common Good Radio Show online at eleven sixty hope dot com podcast. Wherever it is, you get your podcast. Go ahead and subscribe, rate, review. And if you look right behind you, man, he made John producer John PJ made a whole new sign for Twitter. So we we do not forget it. It's funny by comparison because the first sign has like a bunch of data on it, <laughs> and then this next sign is, is just the Twitter handle, yes. which I think is made for you. By the way, I, dude, <laughs> when you and I switch seats, it's going to go behind right, us. Right. So I see it you still. offered seven different handles <laughs> the first two. Let the first me two now. Days. I will give you the correct one every time now. Twitter at Common Good Talk. That is at Common. Good. It's funny because he still read it. Like he looked up and made sure he had it right. I still read everything. I read the Facebook page every time on that sign up there. Yeah, you don't know our life. Yeah, it's tough. It's I tough. got a lot of things in this brain of mine right now. <laughs> I mean, well, okay. <laughs> Speaking of Twitter and Facebook, one of the articles flying around, uh, at least on my Facebook and Twitter feeds right now, uh, is a reaction that was written. Uh, by a guy by the name of John Cooper. He is a lead singer for the Christian rock band Skillet. And uh, it is in response to um, the articles and the posts that's come out recently. First, Joshua Harris basically saying, hey, after kind of being a leader and a pastor and a writer, I don't believe any of this stuff anymore. Uh, And then most recently, um, Marty Sampson, the songwriter out of Hillsong for many years, basically coming out and saying, depending on who you read, either saying, I don't believe this anymore, or my faith is really hanging from a a string right now. Uh, And this guy, John Cooper, came out and wrote a really long post uh, about all this. And uh, because it's just flying around the Internet, including our Facebook page, uh, thought we would get into it uh, because this whole issue of people publicly kind of denouncing their faith or questioning their faith, it seems like a new one. It feels like a new move in kind of the Christian social media world. Uh, And so let me just read bits and pieces of this. I'd encourage you to go online and read the whole thing, but it's, I mean, it's typed out right here and it's three pages long. So it's quite the post, not 140 characters. (laughs) And uh, so he says this, he starts with this. Okay. I'm saying it because it's too important not to, 
What is happening in Christianity? More and more of our outspoken leaders or influences who are once, quote, faces of the faith are falling away. And at the same time, they're being very vocal and bold about it. Shockingly, they still want to influence others. But for what purpose? As they announce, they are leaving the faith. I'll state my conclusion, he says. Then I'll state some rebuttals to the statements I've read from many of them. Firstly, I never judge people outside of my faith, even if they hate religion or Christianity. That's not my place. And I have many friends who disagree with my religion, and that's 100% fine with me. However, when it comes to people within the faith, there must be a measure of loyalty and friendship and accountability to each other and the word of God. So he says, my conclusion for the church, all of us Christians, we must stop making worship leaders and thought leaders or influences or cool people or, quote, relevant people the most influential people in Christendom. And yes, that includes people like me. I've been saying for 20 years that we are in a dangerous place when the church is looking to 20 year old worship singers as our source of truth. Let me stop there. What do you, what do you think about what he's saying and kind of a response to what's been going on recently? I, uh, there's, I mean, not surprisingly, yeah, I, I enjoy and appreciate and agree with some of it and disagree and don't enjoy uh, (laughs) other parts of it for a couple of reasons. And I'll just be, I'll just poke the hive just for fun. Go for um, it. Just for fun. Because it's Thursday. It become part of part of uh, his premise is this: like he's claiming it's a tired old trope to say, "Oh, the church isn't talking about these things," and he's saying that's just not true. There's plenty of churches that are talking about these things, while at the same time making sweeping statements like we shouldn't be looking to 20 year olds for wisdom. That is also a like weirdly archaic way. Like, Hey, unless you have three degrees or you've lived 50 years or more, you don't have anything to say. I don't think that's true either. Now in my snarkiest moments, (laughs) I do agree with the sentiment though. Like sometimes 22 year olds writing books on marriage in my mind makes me go crazy. Uh, (laughs) I can tell the number of times you've brought that up. I need to find some of those for you. (laughs) Please send them my way. Send them right to the studio. We'd love to review them. What if we find one and we interview the person and you're just going to have to bite your lip and be nice? No, I wouldn't bite my lip. I'd love to engage with it. That's the thing. That's the sick part of my brain is I actually really love engaging with people that I totally disagree with because that's how we grow. That's how, that's how we learn. Um, But it is, there's other things in this statement though. This, sta- this statement, this blog, this massive blog that I, I do resonate with. And he yeah. talks about how, you know, how much we elevate kind of Christian celebrities. Um, but then to say that all Christian celebrities right. have no depth or have no wisdom just isn't the case. Yep. You know, I, I feel very fortunate to have actually met and hung out with a number of these people. And when you get them just one on one, you're like, oh, you are just as wise as you seem. And yeah. you have experience and you actually do have clout and things to speak to this. So sometimes the, the article overall feels like it swings for the fence a little bit. seems like it's looking to the people that I think have had serious doubts and questions and said, hey, what about Christian loyalty? And I'm like, yeah. I don't know that that's helpful, though, to the people who are really struggling with doubt and the infrastructure of their faith. But on the other hand, I think that his call to like, man, we really need to start talking about the word more. We, we yeah, I, I think maybe that's lost some of its value in like mainline pop Christianity. And I think, I think he's got a good caution there. I do think it's a little odd. He even used the phrases and I think he's using them saying we can't have these, this kind of, you know, and, and when we were younger, I never thought of anybody as an influencer or like, a, yeah, uh, right. Uh, but he does say a lot of good stuff there. I guess I would ask you this. Are you, is it, is it weird that this is happening on more that more occasions now, or is it just the nature of having social media where every, everything's public for everybody it just seems like like kind of a it's like this new genre, this new thing of like I'm going to question my faith very publicly for everybody, or that could just be the culture we live in now with everything. 
I, you know, honestly, I think a lot of that is the nature of technology too, and have access to, to more, not only more information, but more people. And I think when you talk about, there is a big movement, movement of deconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe even that language is new for some people, but uh, I don't know. I think because we have access so much easier to these stories, yeah. I think just as many people had disavowed their faith and felt the complications and either never articulated it or 40 years ago they did, but you and I never heard about it, it because they, office they didn't live in yeah. our zip code. Right. Yeah. Like there yeah. was no tweet and retweet for the whole world to find out about it. We didn't have worship bands with 1.2 million followers. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that just yeah. didn't exist. So I, I what's my answer? I think so. I would say I, I'm with you. There's some good, like in any Twitter rant or whatever, there's going to be some good stuff and some bad. I would say I, I went to one of the ones that you said as well. And that is this whole concept, and we go back to it all the time. This whole concept of the Christian celebrity uh, seems to be whether it's the celebrity pastor who falls or somebody or author or whatever, just is really dangerous. And I think it's if the church can get through that and think about that, I think that'd be really helpful. Yeah, and and the last thing I'll say too, I think that this is. I'd love to maybe dedicate a whole segment to this later. I've been saying that every show Put this week. Put it on week. the list. <laughs> <laughs> but when he says things like we need to value truth over feeling, truth over emotion, yeah. I get what he's getting at. But the subtext of that sometimes can be your feelings don't matter. Yes. Just suppress your feelings. It's all about truth. Uh, disregarding the fact that many of us got to our truth. I think yep. the front wheel of the tricycle in our relationship with God often is experience. God mm-hmm. is a emotive God. So let's not relegate emotions to this thing that just needs to be you know, locked into a that's closet good. so he's clinged to truth. I think it needs to be a both hand. Both hand. Well, that's a good conversation to get us going here. We would love to hear your thoughts at Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show with, or on Twitter uh, at Common Good Talk. You can uh, continue the conversation there. Well, coming up next, uh, we've learned from a study that teenagers 13 to 17 are getting most of their news from not a surprising but somewhat of a concerning place. That is next here on the Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, You can continue the conversation with us at Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Twitter at Common Good Talk. That's at Common Good Talk. Uh, and you can uh, find find uh, articles. I had brain cramp there. Uh, find articles. I am forty two. It happens more and more now. Oh, is that is that what I have? Yeah, to just look wait, forward to, wait to you at forty, man. Things just all of a sudden you're like, oh, look I'm at already that. struggling. You're like, look at that over there. Oh, wait, what was I talking about? Do you ever find yourself like when you're driving with your family and it's silent and you just like read the billboard as you pass by and you're like. Chipotle. And your family's like, what are you doing, Dad? Just running diagnostics. Just, just making sure stuff's all firing. Just making sure I can continue to read. And I've do done that statement. so many times. Just dead quiet. McDonald's. I'm like, what? What are you doing? Do you want us to talk to you? Nope. I'm no, good. no, no, no. Just making sure it's all connected. I While I operate good. a motor vehicle. <laughs> just want to make sure I can do two things at once here. <laughs> Multitask. Check in. Oh, that's funny. Uh, so this article out of USA Today, it is a survey that came out that just is not surprising, but still somewhat interesting. It says this, the results are in teens turn to YouTube to keep up with current events instead of established news organizations. More than 75 percent of the teens in this survey, ages 13 to 17, say it's important to put uh, important to them to follow current events. Yet over half of them get their news from YouTube and social media platforms such as Twitter and Facebook. According to this new poll, the survey of over a thousand teens finds the majority prefer visual media to consume news. 
While on YouTube, 60% of teens say they're getting their news from celebrities, influencers, and personalities. Uh, something that uh, Michael Robb, who helped run this uh, survey, says is a, quote, cause for concern. He says, we don't necessarily have a great sense of whether those influencers or celebrities have standards and ethics or what kind of disclosures they're making. Are they objective sources or not? How trustworthy are their sources? <laughs> but ha- I, hold your thought. We both had the same thought. Gosh. Half of teens say they watch videos that play automatically or are recommended for them based on the site's algorithm. Yes. YouTube recently came under fire for its recommendations, including graphic videos being intertwined with children's comments and spreading hateful messages on the platform. So there's some more t- uh, survey stuff in there, but I think you get the point. Uh, you, you were ready to jump in. Probably the same thing that stuck out to me. But first, tell me, uh, A, surprising or and or is it uh, concerning that most teenagers are getting their news from YouTube. Can't it be both surprising and concerning? Sure. <laughs> it yeah. kind of is. I actually didn't know YouTube was still quite this viable. It I have been, I've been following a lot about the algorithm stuff, particularly with some of these like tragic shootings and whatnot, and how the algorithms feed continued content, obviously, that they would think the viewer will want to engage with. Yeah. So at the base level, I get why, but it's led us to some very, very dark places. But I also did have a, a friend of mine, Brandon Benskin. He was saying, hey, when are you going to get the show, the podcast on YouTube? I was like, I don't know that there's any re- no one needs to see us. He's like, well, that's where I consume all my, like, wow. a, just a, I was like, just a static shot of us in the studio. He goes, yeah, that would be way easier for me than going to Apple Podcasts. For or, real. Like, he said, that, he said, me and my millennial friends, that would be the way that we, we do it. I was like, oh, I didn't even, didn't even think about that. So anyway, th- Michael that's Robb, uh, senior director of research at Common Sense, which is the, uh, the group Common Sense Media that uh, conducted this survey. I got to just reread this when yeah, he's asking ahead. questions. Uh, are they objective sources or not? How trustworthy is the research? Couldn't we say that about most mass media right now? <laughs> yes. Anyway, there's like assumption they're like, well, who knows where they're getting mm-hmm. their facts from? Like, we don't know that. If we just anyway. put these kids in front of the NBC nightly news and <laughs> yeah, give them right. a New York Times, there we Fox go. News every night. <laughs> right. That would clean it up. I will say this though, before we jump more into perspective, uh, only 41% of teens seek their news from print and digital news organizations, 37 from TV news. But they also recognize news organizations as more trustworthy than social oh, media sources, with less than 40% believing social media and influencers generally get the facts straight. Hmm. So that number is still kind of high, but to know that more than half at least know social media is, doesn't scrutinize or doesn't have as many gatekeepers or you know processes to kind of help keep these things in line. But I found this sentence really interesting. Uh, still, teens believe YouTube and other social media sites help them stay up to date on current events. Hmm. That is different than just simply talking about news. Up to date on current events Mm -hmm. includes a whole swath of things. And I think that's what's curious about the things they choose and the platforms they choose to engage with them on is because I think they're probably looking for different things. You and I are probably interested in different kinds of news than a 13 year old is. That's a good point. I imagine so. And so maybe the medium fits the message. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, You asked about YouTube having kids that are a little older. I don't know how we've avoided it. My kids are not big YouTube people. Really? But. I've talked to some parents who that's all their kids literally watch. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're watching like, you know, other people play Fortnite, like not even playing Fortnite, but watching other people play Fortnite. Or open gifts uh, or yep. that's a whole thing. Like kids making millions of dollars opening toys. Really? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, some eight-year-old just—I I forget what the number was—but it's like two million dollars. Their his parents have quit their jobs to help him make these videos. What are my kids doing? <laughs> not not, op- not, not opening toys their way at home. Yeah, right. That's the big takeaway from the story. One of the interesting things as I read this, I thought to myself, uh, you know, I'm 42 years old. I would say if if I had to answer, where do I? What is the gateway for me to the majority of the news I consume? I'd say Twitter. Really. Probably hmm. that's really I don't tweet much, but I I'm on Twitter a good amount following. That's where now a lot of times, you know, I'm following, say, NBC News and it gives me something to click on. But sure. I would say the gateway for me mm. getting my news is normally Twitter. Yeah, I mean, it's probably my neighbor, Gary, for me. Yeah, <laughs> He's usually wander the neighborhood with a bathrobe and nothing else. And I just ask him what's going a on. Bathrobe and nothing else. No, Scott's kidding. Nah. Gary, come <laughs> on, Gary, get it together. Nah, he's, 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 he's a good friend. Um. Yeah, for me, it's probably Apple Podcasts, but again, because I have yep. subscriptions to news organizations and I like the long form, like, give me 45 minutes on this topic, mm. but I'm on Twitter and Facebook and all that dumb stuff, too. But, you know, I, I think that it, it does depend on what you're looking for, though. If you're yeah. just wanting sound bites, one avenue is maybe better than the other. And I think this doesn't surprise me that kids are finding it in places different than adults are. How do you, how would you answer this question? Because you and I both literally laughed as we were reading where the guy was like, we don't know if these are trustworthy. We're like, right, right. I don't know any of it's trustworthy. Right. So what do you do with that? How do you feel like you're getting good information? How do you get past this trustworthiness barrier, whether it be MSNBC and Fox News or YouTube? So like Marsha Vaughn, who was on the show last week, she mm-hmm. she is a big proponent of, you know, fact checking and especially stuff on the Facebook feed that's like, hey, did you do any research at all on this? And so she's, you know, she's taught research courses. So okay. even, even just at a very practical level, teaching us how to assess stuff that is legitimate sources that are legitimate. You've learned this, I'm sure, in seminary about like, hey. Uh, a commentary online, you know, from Bob's backyard theology <laughs> isn't quite as good as these authors or these sources. Um, but honestly, it feels like in this day and age, just a half a second of effort to see if like, hey, are there 17 posts that say this story isn't real? Then it's probably yep. not real. Like when you snopesed me the other day during the segment. <laughs> I didn't intend to snopes you, but Google uh, brought me to snopes. It was guilty. <laughs> I think, that, I think that kind of stuff actually is far easier than people realize. It just takes a teensy bit of effort. Yes. And then again, you get into all sorts of other things about how statistics can be manipulated, as they often are, yeah. to prove a point. And that one gets of, trickier. One of the scariest words right now is algorithm. Because <laughs> it's... Former, you, former vice president's uh, drum troop. You are... Algorithm. He's really talented. You should see. You should see it, man. That but, is as good a joke as you've made since we started this show. It's a thing of beauty. That was. Did you just think of that, or have you heard that before? I think I've said it on this show before. No, never the Al Gore. One. I think so. I don't think so. All right. Hey, producer John, go back through all the shows we've done. <laughs> and find out. Search keyword algorithm. algorithm. Well, I can use an algorithm probably. Yeah. Find it. Uh, I just said that on a drum set. There you go. Well, speaking of Twitter. <laughs> Uh, coming up next, I want to read for you a tweet that I can guarantee you is trustworthy. Oh, boy. And the source that is trustworthy. Oh, that gosh. is coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Along with Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Also on Twitter, uh, at Common Good Talk. That is at Common Good Talk. And speaking of Twitter, uh, <laughs> we were just talking last segment about how um, especially teenagers are getting their news from Twitter, YouTube, Facebook. 
Uh, and we, you and I were having a good discussion about trustworthiness of news at all sites and how do we find trustworthy uh, news sites. Well, I want to tell you all, I'm about to read a tweet that is from a trustworthy site. You are just grinning from you, ear to do ear, you ear agree? right now. Do you agree? Do you agree? I don't think I should comment on this one. This one is from at Ian Simpkins, at Ian Simpkins. So sometimes you're, okay, all jokes aside, and I'm going to embarrass you here, you're really good at Twitter. Oh, you tweet well. Thanks, and so man. every now and then I read stuff and I go, well, let's just talk about that one. And so that that came, this is where this came from. Um, so I think you tweeted this yesterday. Yeah. And I'd love to know, <laughs> I don't want to know too much backstory because it could be coming out of your own marriage, but... Yeah, what time did uh, I tweet this at? <laughs> exactly. 12.55. Oh, wait, uh, we ooh, were together. Oh Hold on. Yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, Ian tweeted this, and I would love to know just kind of your thoughts behind it because it came from your mind. Here you go. Don't fight to win the argument. Fight to win the relationship. Don't fight to win the argument. Fight to win the relationship. That was your tweet. Where did that come from? Give us your thoughts behind that. Well, let me first say I'm terrible at this. <laughs> that tends to be where most of this stuff comes from. Stuff mm. on Facebook and Twitter is like stuff I'm honestly struggling with. I, I was admitting this to someone a couple of weeks ago. I was talking about, not the specifics, but I was talking about um, you know, my wife and I had gotten into an argument and I had this thought about 25 minutes into the argument. We're going back and forth, and it's, and it's like yep. it's escalating. It's getting it's getting kind of heated, and uh, in my brain, I thought, you know, I think she's right, but I think I can win this. <laughs> and I was so that's awesome. I was so heartbroken and mad at yeah. myself for even having that. Th- like, ugh, how gross is that? You yep. know, what? I think she's yep. right, but I think I can still win this. That like. Yep. Impulse to win, oh even gosh, though your yeah. own ever felt that way before. Uh, your own yes. brain confesses, like you know, she's got a great point here. Yep. <laughs> this is actually the time for me to apologize and, right. and agree with her. This would be the time to cut my losses to to be the kind of person that I I call you know instruct people on Sundays to be. <laughs> all that stuff, all the guilt, all the <laughs> yep. it, it was really humbling. The you know, I think she's right. But I think what I did you do? This. So what did you do? Oh, I just kept fighting. Did you? Yeah, I, I dug in. Um, I think eventually. I don't know how that one ended, actually. Um, it's over, though, right? It's, no, we're still fighting. It's uh, <laughs> three months ago, and um uh, living in the basement. No, we no, we eventually... Sometimes, you, you know, it's we could talk about relationships yep. uh, this segment or another segment. Sometimes just stepping away for a second is really helpful. I need to go clear my head or whatever. But this wasn't actually birthed out of any specific argument, yeah, but it yeah. reminded me of something that a mentor of mine used to always talk to us about, mostly in, like, pastoral training, but it's certainly been helpful in marriage, is that... So often it's easy to make like the person, the thing you're fighting mm. against or with, right? Yeah. They're the enemy. Like, oh, they're the ones that assumed this or said this or behave that way. And he's like, man, don't, don't, don't fight in a way that makes you the victor. Because as we all know, to win an argument still doesn't really mean that you're winning at all. How, yeah. how do you actually, what he would often say is kind of triangulate, like make it the two of you linked arms together against this third party, mm. i.e. the problem, whatever the issue is. And like learning to posture ourselves like, oh, the issue is mm. this other thing that's kind of trying to come between my wife and I. And it's, and it's usually something we said or did. You yeah. know, that's that's where it gets tricky because it's embodied in a person. Yeah. But this sort of triangulation has always really helped me. So the idea of don't fight to win the argument, because even if you do, you're not really winning fight yeah. to win the relationship, which means caring about the person first yep. and that's that's easier said than done so if you were counseling a married couple or uh you know premarital counseling whatever um and they they said well the way to fight to the way to win the relationship is not fight oh, so yeah. just don't fight 
Uh, so don't even fight. Not even don't fight to win the argument. Just don't fight. That's the best way to win the relationship. That's why I wrote it this way, because mm-hmm. some people, especially in Christian circles, tend to get um, they tend to be surprised when we ever say things like, hey, get angry about the right things. Mm-hmm. People are like, oh, I thought I wasn't supposed to get angry at all. Like, nope, there's nope. stuff in the world that should make us righteously anger in the sa- angry. And in the same way, it was like fighting should be a part of it. You know, I've, I've definitely counseled couples where you'll ask them in their your first session, like, oh, tell me what fighting is like. I'm like, oh, we've never fought. Yeah, that was me. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. That was my premarital counseling. And the lady looked at us and said, like, we were really proud of ourselves. She's oh, like, tell no us, kidding. I didn't know tell this. us about your, how you guys fight. And we we're like, oh, we never fight. And <laughs> your voices lady, were a lot higher then. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and then I got married really young. <laughs> and then, uh, but I remember now looking back, I'm like, oh, that was so, because we fought the second, we're like two days after the honeymoon, right? You after did? That. Oh, have I never told you about our first fight? Maybe you did. Uh, let me tell it was you. On the honeymoon? No, no, no. Two like two days after the honeymoon, we come back. No, the day after. We <laughs> somehow this turned on me here. We come back from our honeymoon, and uh, we are uh, moved in. We're in our apartment. Well, like, you know, one bedroom apartment, and right. Living the I, dream. I am going the next day. I'm going back to work as the youth pastor at Glenelg Bible Church, and Carrie, my new bride, at that point. Uh, she hadn't yet, she hadn't started her job yet. Okay. And so she uh, decides I'm going to, I always say this was like our 1950s moment. She's like, I'm going to set up the apartment and have a dinner ready when my Aww. new husband comes home from work. That's sweet though. It's great. Uh, and what so. What could possibly go wrong, Brian From Me. That's what went wrong. <laughs> so we get, I get home and the place smells great. Like it's a dinner. I actually used this in a sermon open the other day. Nice. Uh, I walk in and my wife has this. Uh, dinner spread of uh, French toast, uh, eggs, bacon, sausage. Breakfast the whole, for dinner. Aww. Yeah. If you were ever part of the Fromm household growing up, breakfast for dinner was not a thing. What? I never did it. Like literally never That's did so it. so sad. And so uh, she's got all this breakfast food and she is like very proud of herself, new marriage, all this. And I walked in and the first words out of my mouth were, What's this? Oh boy! <laughs> and you're still married, huh? And and that <laughs> that ended up in a, our first fight, and then a day later, our second fight occurred <laughs> because we lived in our first apartment did not have a dishwasher; just you had to hand wash the dishes. Right. And we got in an argument about how long it was appropriate to go before washing the dishes. I'll give really? you a hint: I was willing to go longer than she was. <laughs> yeah, I'm shocked. So all that to say, you get into marriage and fights happen because now you're doing life and living with somebody and you can avoid those when you're dating or you're just engaged. Yeah, because you're pretending. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You're it's all it's all this best foot exactly. forward version of yourself. So how do you tell people to fight to win the relationship? What would be two or three takeaways of how people could do that? Well, I, you know, I, I not to get too um, sermony, but I think. When we forget that people are made in the image and likeness of a God that loves them and knows them, that's mm. the easiest way, I think, for us to start to dismantle their dignity and humanity and just, like, see them as this doer of evil. Mm. So starting with, like, the really hard work of, like, oh, man, this is this is a dearly beloved son or daughter of God, which is so, it sounds so cheesy now that I'm even saying it out loud. But, <laughs> um, but there's all sorts of other things that yeah. I'll, I'll typically write out and say, listen to understand, not listen to respond. Good. So often in arguments, we're just waiting to offer our rebuttal. <laughs> As opposed to like really listening to what's the thing behind the thing mm-hmm. and like know yourself. You got, I mean, the, what is a Socrates? The unexamined life is not worth living. Like mm-hmm. I know that I really struggle if someone assumes ill motive of me. That's, yeah. a, that's a really big. So if in an argument someone's like, oh, you probably did this because of that. Uh, 
I just I just start to see red because it's this mm. person, especially if it's someone that knows you. And you're like, why would you assume this awful motive? Yeah. You know me. You know that's not. And then I become really tough to converse with. Like mm. that is so. So knowing yourself and what triggers you and not responding triggered and that kind of stuff is also, I think, really, really important. It's not just about sitting patiently and letting them speak. Yeah. Like Know what sets you off and also know what you need to succeed. Sometimes needing to go for a walk is perfectly okay yeah. and knowing that about yourself and communicating it communicate yeah. communicate communicate that's really good man don't fight to win the argument fight to win the relationship you can find nuggets like that at at ian simpkins and uh no i appreciate that that was uh Thanks, man. that was good <laughs> well you're listening to the common good am 1160 hope for your life Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You can find us at Facebook, at The Common Good Radio Show, on Twitter, uh, at Common Good Talk. You can also find our podcast wherever it is you find your podcasts. Go ahead and subscribe, rate, review, and uh, you know, listen to us in bunches. Listen to us uh, a little bit at a time. Double the speed, half the speed. I still haven't tried to, what did you tell me to do, half speed? Mm-hmm. Why are you making a face? I don't. I don't love listen to us in bunches. <laughs> you don't want that as the new tagline to our no, show. I don't. Comic good. Nope. 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 That makes me uncomfortable. No, thank you. I opt out. I'd like to fight to win this argument. <laughs> this is not a hill I'm going to die on. I promise. Okay. <laughs> this is not one I'm going to die on. But before we jump into a blog post by JD Greer, uh, let me tell you about something going on here. Date night. Date night needs to be more than just dinner and a movie. Mm-hmm. The free ebook Date Night Ideas by Dr. Greg and Aaron Smalley is filled with 52 great date night suggestions for you and your spouse. Why 52? You're supposed to answer me there. Oh, because that is the holiest of numbers. <laughs> Good. Thank you. Download this focus on the family resource now at 1160hope.com, keyword marriage. You'll also have a chance to take a focus on marriage assessment and enter to win an all-inclusive retreat. Where do you think that all-inclusive retreats do? Uh, it's at my house. <laughs> nope. You don't, you don't know my, you don't know my life. All-inclusive, it means it includes no sleep and changing diapers. Right. Download your free ebook now at 1160hope.com, keyword marriage. That is 1160hope.com, keyword marriage. Well, J.D. Greer, hold on. Hold on. Go ahead and just looked up a picture of Dr. Greg and Aaron Smalley. Yep. Just want to say they look very happy. <laughs> Good, because they do a date night a week. However, the fourth picture on Google Image, though, is the two of them in a boxing ring with boxing gloves. <laughs> That's for real. That is date night number 11. <laughs> yeah, right. 52. Is that one of the suggestions? <laughs> Try sparring. I don't, I don't think that's a good idea. Week 38, mixed martial arts. <laughs> you and I should write a book. No, that's not a good idea. 50, it's a corresponding book. Worst date ideas. 52 of them. Try to complete the them. Thing is, people would probably, nah, maybe not. An impossible burger at Burger King. <laughs> if you don't like having a soul. <laughs> And again, if you do not know what we're talking about, that's why you need to podcast right there. <laughs> or maybe exactly why you're avoiding the podcast. <laughs> Either way. That is funny. J.D. Greer at his own blog at jdgreer.com. Background, J.D. Greer, uh, pastor of a multi-site big church in, I believe, Raleigh, North Carolina, right? Summit uh, Church, I believe. And uh, uh, more known now as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I uh, did that off the top of my head, right? It's still the convention. Southern Baptist Convention. It is. 
so he's the new president. They're kind of like the young blood that they've brought in to kind of uh, kind of wade through uh, this next kind of generation of the Southern Baptist. Anyway, J.D. Greer wrote a blog post uh, titled this men. It's time to step up. And uh, he says, uh, in our day, we have a lot of men in the church who are, quote, hanging back by the ships. A story he shared earlier when they ought to be leading out in the fight. They are not bad guys. Uh, They're just couch potatoes, so to speak. Uh, He says, for example, the International Mission Board says that volunteers going to hard places, those countries close to the gospel, uh, female applicants outnumber males four to one. Praise God for these women of courage, but where are the men? And so he keeps going, uh, and he says, we've got to have more men leading, fighting out against injustice in our society, fighting for faithfulness in the home. I long for the day when Christian men show the same zeal in raising their children and fighting for their marriages as they do in building their careers. And when I first read that, that's the line I wanted us to hit on. Um, but I want to back up a little bit. Just your thoughts on this. I know this isn't normally the stream you go in. Uh, you want well, men to step up. Yeah, this kind mean, of what writing. What do you mean by that, Brian? I go this kind of writing. I think we need less men All right. stepping up. I'm not going to presume what you think. Go <laughs> ahead and just tell me what you think. How's that sound? About, about what exactly? The, the background, kind of his, uh, his premise of this. I, I mean, I think given the author and the source, it's not totally surprising. I think there's plenty about it that I uh, the second to last paragraph, he says, most guys feel like they are good dads if they provide food and shelter for their families. But even possums give their offspring food and shelter. Is this the bar we want to set for manhood? Yes. <laughs> thought, oh, that's pretty snarky. That's pretty good. Snarky is uh, my love language. So, you know, on, on one hand, I think uh, there is a lot of wisdom to that. And mm-hmm. there is a lot of uh, pretty fairly credible research to show that um, male engagement at the local church level is mm-hmm. legitimately in decline. Um, I remember the first person... I ever really heard talk about this when I was in college was Mark Driscoll. Uh, and I look back now at some of the packaging of how that was conveyed. Yep. I, I, I would like to distance myself from, yeah, yeah. Um, which is weird because if I could just kind of confess on air, like it is very strange to both agree with some of the ethos of this article, but also want to add some caveats yeah. or also say, um, yeah, but we need more people in general to step up. And mm-hmm. sometimes we create this, like part of what he talks about, we need men leading and fighting and fighting for faithfulness, fighting against injustice, mm-hmm. which is not part of my struggle is um, I don't often see people, at least in these theological streams, using that same type of vigorous language when talking about women. Yeah, you're right. So it's like men are fighting injustice or fighting for faithfulness. Right. Women are um, serving with love and compassion. Yeah. I was like, yeah. don't both need to be doing both? Like, yeah. haven't we? That's where it gets a little tricky for me yep. when it starts to feel a teensy bit one-dimensional and flat. Again, I'm saying all of this a little trepidatiously because at the end of the day, you agree I still think yeah. he's right. Yeah. But So here's the line I want to jump on. Uh, husbands and fathers, your greatest ministry is in the home. Yeah. And I think you and I would both yell amen to that. We're good with that. I would ask this. Um, it's a long way to get to this question. How do you do that well? <laughs> like he, guy comes to you in your office, Ian, Pastor Ian, how do I do this well? Or just as you think through your growing family, yeah. uh, how do you how do you put meat on these bones? Because we all say this. We all believe this. Not we all. Okay. We all in this studio <laughs> believe 100% this. 100% of the two of us. <laughs> how, how do you live this out? How do we even begin to take steps to, and order our lives to lead this out well? All right, I'm going to say something really unpopular. Oh, yes. I have so held that for so long, and I'm going to disagree with part of it that may surprise you. Uh I think 
sometimes when we tell particularly men that their first ministry is at home, it makes their home one more project. So mm. it's the thing. Oh, it's another thing that I do. Like the home is a part of who you are. Like mm. that's, that's your people. And for very task driven people like you or I, or, you know, we love yep. cast and vision. We, that's the stuff that we just like to do when you just sort of put it in the same. Yeah. You have all these ministries, but your home is your first one. It's another one. It gotcha. feels like you're just adding it to a, another list of part of a vocational expectation, a good expectation sure. for sure. So I'm not, I, so as, you see why I'm I reluctant to even say this. I, your no, but ho- I think it's a good point. Your home is not a project, though. Yeah. Like, your family is not a task. It's not, oh, that's, I have a lot of ministry things to do, and my home is my first one, mm-hmm. I think. And maybe I'm harping on the word in a way that's not totally uh, relevant anymore. But um, I think, like, I had a conversation with a guy a couple months ago, and he, he was, his his wife was looking to leave. Like, it mm-hmm. looked like the end was, was near. And I, uh, so I was just sort of at, trying to get into his head a little bit, and I said, um, well, what what is your what's your wife's love language? And he's like, my wife's what? Mm. I go, love language. Well, how does your wife like to be cared for? How does she feel seen and loved and known? He's like, I've I have no idea what you're talking about. Dude, been married you know fourteen years, and that's yeah. not not to his discredit, but he, as we kind of walked down further, it became very clear that all the things that he was doing for her were how he wanted to be served, yeah. how he wanted to be loved, and had never even considered that like it was the opposite of what she needed. And I think it's so important that we're always being mindful to be present. And to be uh, as aware of the needs of the people that God has placed around us as best we can. Mm. And to love them uh, as Christ loves us. Mm. Good stuff. You can find this on our Facebook page at The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, You're listening to The Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes. Our common fears. Our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, on Twitter at Common Good Talk. That's at Common Good Talk. You can also find our podcast uh, wherever it is you find your podcast. Go ahead and subscribe, rate, review. Uh, Been a fun day so far. And uh, there was a weird, almost when I heard this story, I was like, that can't be true. (laughs) Uh, But it's something that I feel like needs discussion. It was uh, a quote uh, that was made and then kind of doubled down on, like not like, oh, sorry, that's not what I meant, but kind of doubled down on uh, by a guy by the name of Ken Cuccinelli. Ken Cuccinelli is an important person in our country because he is the acting director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. And so by that, he is the face uh, of citizenship and immigration, which is a big deal yeah. uh, in our uh, in our country right now. And uh, Cuccinelli uh, was uh, responding to a question um, uh, via phone. And the question had to do with uh, the poem, the Emma Lazarus poem inscribed on the Statue of Liberty, right? Uh, and uh, it says, instead of reading, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe, breathe free, uh, Cuccinelli suggested that maybe we should say something else. Here's what he said. Uh, They certainly are. Give me your tired and your poor who can stand on their own two feet and who will not become a public charge. So give me your tired and your poor who can stand on their own two feet and who will not become 
a public charge. That is a uh, that is a pretty significant difference, I would say. Well, Brian, I'd, I'd like to read the words of Jesus from Matthew eleven twenty eight, which reads, as we all know, come to me, all who can stand on their own two feet and I will give you rest. Oh, you're getting snarky now. Oh, was that, was that snarky? <laughs> was it clear? Was it obvious? Again, I know that Jesus isn't uh, an American politician in 2019. Um, <laughs> that said, I like you, and I saw it kind of blow up the Twitter sphere. I was like, well, that can't be. This is, this is uh, out of context. This is some sort of soundbite that I'm going to find some context that's going to make me feel better about this whole thing. And I was not fortunate to find such mm. things. So, I, you know... Um, where do you want to go with this? Well, there's a little more background. He said um, this. Uh, he says this will allow officials to reject green card and visa applicants if they are low income, have little education, or have ever relied on social assistance programs like Medicaid or food stamps. Okay. He said in a CNN op-ed, this will help citizenship and immigration services, which he directs, objectively determine whether the applicant is likely at any time in the future to receive. Uh, benefits. The law, Cuccinelli says, will require self-reliance and self-sufficiency for those seeking to come to or stay in the United States. And self-sufficiency has been a core tenant of the American dream. So let me let me just uh, I must have played devil's advocate, but, you know, the devil doesn't need an advocate. Right. Uh, but let me just say this. What what is wrong with what he's saying? Right. Shouldn't somebody come here and be able to uh, isn't if if they are not able to stand on their own two feet? Uh, isn't the burden for them just going to land on all of us taxpayers who are already here? What if they're fleeing violence? What if they're seeking asylum? Uh, yes. <laughs> I, I'm having trouble, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, the segment's almost over here. And uh, no, I mean, honestly. Let's, so you do think. OK, so if they are fleeing let's violence, let's hypothetically, in. in the case, they are mm-hmm. running from extreme violence and they're seeking asylum, which is a legal right. Yep. Uh is that still required of them to have a high enough education and high enough employment to not be a, what's the word? Not a drain on the American economy. Right. That's, they that, can't stand on their own two is feet. That, is that viable in your opinion? Or uh, no, that's not say viable. Moral. To let them in? No, to not let them in. Yeah, I'm going to stop playing a devil's advocate and say, I don't think so. <laughs> Before I pick like, myself too fun. far. <laughs> I'm starting to sound like the devil. Uh, so... Especially the people who, like you said, asylum is a very uh, legal thing uh, that people apply for when fleeing hardship and things like that. And uh, it's ah, there's something so hard about this line about being able to stand on your own two feet. Uh, I feel like I can rarely stand on my own two feet without any assistance of friends, family. Well, that's the uh, point, right? You're other the, people. You're the product of a infrastructure that, and not, and you've worked hard, obviously. And no, you could keep going. And, I'm, yep. <laughs> and you're good looking, and you're charming. <laughs> people like you. People like you, Stuart Smalley. But <laughs> you know what I mean, like that. I, I appreciate even your wherewithal to, to know, though, that like so much of what got you here in the first place, in general was a lot of support well before you could stand on your own two feet. And that that sentiment is so complicated. Um, not that I don't think we, we, I mean, we absolutely need checks and balances and we need procedures and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm for those things. But I don't know, the rhetoric to me like this from someone in this kind of position just doesn't seem to point in any direction that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. It says, um, yeah, it, it is... Uh, you, you wish I, I get it. It's a very immigration, as you and I have talked about before here, is 
such a complex issue, right? Like I was just having a conversation with someone a couple days ago about immigration and, you know, the person made some points like, uh, you know, what if bad people are coming? What if whatever or the drain on the tax base? But in the end, you would hope that we would be a place that can especially take the most vulnerable. Uh, am I being too naive to put it this way? I would hope that we can take the most vulnerable and figure it out <laughs> and figure it out. And uh, that doesn't mean there can't be laws. There can't be rules. There can't be systems. Um, but I'm not sure that saying, oh, you can't stand on your own two feet. You have to go back as a blanket statement is helpful uh, or caring at all. So I'm uh, I'm at the World Relief website. We had uh, Shannon and Luke Wentz in the studio. And I think hopefully soon we'll have Matt Sorens as well. Great. People that you know are far more versed in this. I wanted to read a response to a question that I thought was really helpful. It says, what makes someone... Illegal. Are the terms undocumented and illegal the same? If an individual either enters the country without inspection, overstays, or violates the terms of a temporary visa, they could be considered unlawfully present or illegal. While uh, definitionally correct, a better term to use in reference to these individuals is undocumented or unauthorized. While a person's Mm. mode of entry may be illegal, that does not define their personhood any more than someone who speeds on the highway is an illegal. It's also worth noting that about half of those who are currently unlawfully present in the U.S., including a majority of those who have arrived in recent years, originally entered lawfully on a valid visa. For many undocumented immigrants, the process of becoming undocumented happens without their knowledge upon the expiration of their original visa. Even those who have crossed a border unlawfully are explicitly allowed by U.S. law to request asylum at a port of entry. Likewise, most of those crossing the border unlawfully are not trying to evade detention, but are, in fact, looking for the Border Patrol to request asylum. Mm. What do you think? It, it, that is not the picture that's often painted for us. That's, that's one thing. exactly my point. And yes. so I would love to have him on to talk more because I, it's not something that I understand well. You know, we don't exactly live near a border. <laughs> so yeah, right. not that it doesn't touch us, obviously, a big city like Chicago. Um, I guess... Uh, again, my, my my heart wants to say that I want us to be a country that can figure out how to be caring mm. and, and to be loving. I get the dangers of that. Oftentimes putting yourselves out there uh, is opens yourselves up to danger. And, and you know, there's conversations to be had around that. Um, ultimately, as, as you and I often turn it from policy and government to church, uh, the church needs to be at the forefront, regardless of what you believe about immigration. The church needs to be at the forefront with organizations like World Vision. And thankfully, I know a lot of people that are. And uh, I would encourage those who are Christ followers out there to say, hey, regardless of policy or broken systems or whatever, how can I help the most marginalized and the most hurting? Yeah, let me I I just want to read a couple of other answers that they tackle. And I highly encourage you to go to worldrelief.org, read some of the most recent stuff they posted. But a couple of the questions that I tend to hear a lot uh, are, are unauthorized immigrants more likely to commit a crime than native born Americans? No. While some immigrants in the country unlawfully have committed crimes, they actually do so at rates significantly lower than native-born U.S. citizens. One way to measure this is by analyzing incarceration rates among adults ages 18 to 54. About 0.76% of unauthorized immigrants in the U.S. were incarcerated in 2017, compared to about 1.5% of native-born U.S. citizens. That Mm -hmm. discrepancy is also notable because uh, the share of immigrants who are incarcerated includes asylum seekers and other held in immigration detention facilities who in many cases have not been charged with any crime at all. Mm-hmm. One last question. I know we're probably over time. Do immigrants overwhelm our social services and take resources away from U.S. citizens? 
Immigrants in the country unlawfully do not qualify for most public benefits, nor do most family-sponsored immigrants in the country lawfully for the first several years they are in the U.S. Refugees and individuals granted asylum, but not those with pending cases, generally qualify for the same social services and public benefits as U.S. citizens with the same income levels. And it is worth noting that immigrants regardless of legal status, have access to public education, kindergarten through 12th grade, and emergency treatment at a hospital, and that certain states provide additional benefits beyond those offered at the federal level. All I'm saying is there's a lot of education that I think, uh, particularly like you're saying, the church really, really should be at the forefront of spearheading. And where were you reading that from? That is more people want to read more. Worldrelief.org. Worldrelief.org. We'd encourage you to go there. It's a complex issue. Um, but one that we, we as the church need to be a part of, uh, and, and helping people get it right. So anyway, uh, love your opinion there at Facebook at the common good radio show coming up next, a discussion about thoughts and prayers, uh, in this headline are thoughts and prayers, a cruel joke that's coming up next here on the common good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. I'm just going to try different inflections at each time we come back and now. Can you, can you recreate that one you just did? Well, come back. <laughs> yeah, yeah like you're like a, like a spooky butler in a haunted castle. <laughs> well, that's pretty specific. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised all those words just came out of my mouth, actually. <laughs> they just kept going, spooky, like spooky butler in the, in the 1860s. <laughs> I just have like a Mad Lib of descriptions on my screen all the time. You are insert adjective. (laughs) You are a juicy watermelon, Brian. So so when you used to do Mad Libs growing up, did you always, which one always got you? I was always like, what's an adverb? Oh, we just did Christian versions. It was just Bible verse, insert Bible verse, insert Bible character. (laughs) Insert disciple. Insert prayer. I was like, speaking of. These are different than what my pagan friends do. This is no fun. (laughs) (laughs) Insert, insert method of evangelism. (laughs) Insert remorse, insert confession. Right shame. Signed Augustine. <laughs> what? This is really specific. Insert church father. Oh. Oh, Plus it's, do it's, all, it's all in Greek, so it's really that much harder to do. I don't know what I'm writing. Koine Greek. Speaking of thoughts and prayers, Dana Milbank, a columnist for the Washington Post, uh, he wrote an article the other day uh, in which he says, uh, he says he believes that offering prayer, when, we're talking like in times of tragedy, like these shootings, right? Everyone... There, there's come this new thing where people are quit offering thoughts and prayers after a shooting. He says uh, he believes that offering prayer is, quote, what people say when they plan to do nothing to those who believe his criticism. He responds, we criticize prayer in lieu of action. Uh, he says Republicans thoughts and prayers. So obviously he's uh, he's more on the left. He's more of a Democrat. So he says Republicans thoughts and prayers have become a cruel joke. Uh, he notes that thoughts and prayers are always welcome but then claims that this reflexive response to the endless massacres has become a cruel joke as effective as a hallmark sympathy card. So that's kind of the background. This article article is coming from ChristianHeadlines.com. This whole concept of uh, people offering, quote, thoughts and prayers in the time of tragedy and other people getting really mad about it. uh, Where are you? What are your thoughts on that? Where do you fall on this? Well, I do like what he says. This is uh, Jim Dennison wrote this article at ChristianHeadlines.com says, I agree with Milbank that if we promise to pray but do nothing else, we have not done enough. As James notes, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He goes on, he says, however, like so many in our secular culture, Milbank seems to think that we must choose between prayer and action, that if we pray for victims, 
Uh, we are not acting on their behalf. And he believes that until Republicans act, thinks they, uh, and he thinks that they should, we don't have a prayer. So um, I actually think he's putting a couple of words in Bill Banks' mouth yeah. that aren't there. I don't, I only skimmed the Washington Post article and probably shouldn't have con- confessed that, but um, <laughs> I don't know that Milbanks would say if he was in this room right now that we need to choose between prayer and action. I think his, his statement, his frustration is don't just pray. Mm. Let prayer lead to action. This idea that like contemplation leads to action and action leads to contemplation. That's meant to be a, a cyclical environment, a cyclical relationship. And so often it just stops at, uh, reflection, which you know, we're saying uh, during the break to our uh, our producer PJ uh, <laughs> was saying that actually it is a you know sort of an act of spiritual cruelty in general to say hey I'll pray for you and then just not do it. Yep. Um, that's just at like a social level. Yep. I will also say that so often when this argument and it seems to happen every time there's a national tragedy, people real earnest people I'll often say I don't know what the action for me is yes. though. They'll say thoughts and prayers and they'll say I don't know what else to do. And part of Milbanks' frustration isn't just at general people saying it. Mm-hmm. It's towards politicians and people in power and people of influence who actually could do some things about this. But that's where it starts to get murky, though, because yep. the just do something, that whole rhetoric is super confusing and really vague. And it's like, okay, but what is the something that you would want us to do? And so sometimes it just kind of goes back and forth as yeah. an excuse to just continue to offer thoughts and prayers. And I, yep. I get the frustrations on both sides. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to make sure to highlight that for uh, for us, I think you made a good point. Like if you're say, I'm going to pray for you, whether at times of tragedy or right. like the person that you're talking to at your church or whatever, make sure to pray for them. Like that's, that's, that's especially cruel to be like, Hey Ian, thanks for sharing that with me. I'm going to pray for you. And then be like, look, that got by saying, I'm going to pray for you. That, that was a good way to end that conversation. Honestly, I stopped saying I'm going to, and just ask God to pray for you right now. See, I know people like that. And I always respect that. Like, it's so much, it's not even a respect thing. It like holds me accountable. Absolutely. I'll forget. I, yep. have, I have a terrible memory. Like, I did. Do you have a second right now? I've never had anyone say no to I was be gonna say. I was going to ask you, does that throw people? Cause they're probably sometimes, not used to it. Uh, sometimes, but I, like, we'll, you know, I had a, a guy that I used to get breakfast with every week and he would ask the waiter or waitress every single time. Uh, yep. They never once said no. I, you'd be amazed and say, Hey, could I pray for you? Like it's, mm. I, I just think it's remarkable. But when someone shares something, I think there is some wisdom to say, can I pray for you right now? Why yeah. not? Why not stop what you're doing? Take 30 seconds and pray with them. Yep. And so when it comes to a tragedy like this though, thoughts and prayers, if we are actually praying, the the question that's behind this that often I hear people who are like, that's, you know, thoughts and prayers. That's, that's a cop out is, and I'm not saying this for Milbank in this article, but for other people I've read, it, there's a lack of, there, there's a uh, lack of belief that prayer does anything. And, and I think that's one thing that's, that this kind of conversation forces us as Christians to wrestle with. Do I yeah. believe that prayer actually does anything? Because if we don't, or if we're not going to pray, then thoughts and prayers is a really cruel thing to say. Um, you might as well just say, Hey, I'm, I feel badly for you. I'm good. Uh, and so that does, uh, I think that kind of also undergirds this conversation a little bit. What do you believe about prayer? Um, do you believe it, it, it's powerful and effective uh, for whatever that does mean? Because there's there's obviously mysteriousness to it. Um, but yeah, I feel like that that gets, that's part of this conversation. It, it It is a discussion of what do you believe about prayer? Well, and powerful and effective for whom? Mm-hmm. So often we only talk about, oh, well, it actually changed the circumstances of the people, you know, kind of quote unquote out there that we're praying for. Yeah. There is so much good scholarly and modern work that talks about, I mean, in many ways, the purpose of prayer is to change our hearts mm. 
to then lead us to action. That, I think, is a big part of Mill Banks's frustration is that if all of these people were praying with the fervency and regularity that they mm. keep saying they are, how could something in them not change or at least not lead them to action? Now, obviously, there's policy disagreements. There's differences of approaches and all like, you know, thoughts and prayers doesn't necessarily mean that now we all agree on how to do this. If that yes. were the case, we wouldn't have 12,000 different denominations. Yep. But I think that part of what maybe is underlying in that frustration is that if part of the purpose of prayer, and I absolutely believe that God shows up in the miraculous, yep. but in many ways, and you've probably experienced this, your, your own heart begins mm-hmm. to change. And from Genesis to Revelation, the purpose of that wasn't just so that someone else feels better that we prayed for them, but to ask God, would you do a work in me and lead me to to live differently. That's Paul's or that's Paul's. That's that's David's prayer in the Psalms, right? Like search in me that anything's not of you mm. and then lead me. So it's like creating me something pure and then let's go somewhere. And I think uh, part of the frustration is that it doesn't feel sometimes like the action is associated with the that's prayer. Good. That's good. He gives uh, in this article, he asks, how should we pray and then act on our prayers? He says, first, we should intercede. I like this one specifically and directly for shooting victims and their families. Yeah. Talks about this one person, Taylor Schumann, who was shot when a gunman opened fire at New River Community College in Virginia six years ago, wrote a remarkable, remarkable article for Christianity Today listing 11 specific ways we can pray for people like her. And the, art, the author here says, I've begun praying as she suggested and encourage you to join me. Basically, be specific. Pray for people, not just a, you know, a flippant one, but uh, intercede specifically and directly. And then second, the author says we should look for ways to serve those near us. That's good. Uh, Basically says, uh, as one person, I cannot change the world, but I can change the world of one person, uh, which I think is a powerful statement. Um, Read it again. As one person, I cannot change the world, but I can change the world of one person. So this all goes back to that. I'm going to pray. And out of that prayer, I'm going to act and I'm going to do things. I think that is uh, a helpful reminder. Well, coming up next. Uh, we're going to talk about pastors and seven questions all pastors need to ask themselves. Uh, specifically, this article says post Willow Creek uh, scandal. That's coming up next here on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, So at Missio Alliance, uh, a year ago, they wrote this article kind of uh, reflecting upon uh, the post Bill Hybels and um, Willow Creek, kind of all that went on there. And now you think since then, all the stuff at Harvest Bible Chapels happened uh, and uh, was written here. Seven questions all pastors need to ask themselves post Hybels. Uh, And the author says, like many, I learned a great deal from Bill Hybels, read all of his books on leadership, attended the Global Leadership Summit over the past decade, deeply encouraged by his commitment uh, to empower women in ministry and therefore being shocked by all that we that just happened. Uh, And so he wants to say, uh, what am I going to do rather than just point fingers? What what can I learn uh, about this? Uh, He says the Willow Creek fiasco at this point should cause us to reflect on a number of pastoral discipleship and leadership questions. We need to repent for the ways our souls are not tendered and nurtured, tended and nurtured in truth. We need to repent for the ways we have established church cultures that don't practice mutual submission. So he's basically saying, don't just point fingers out there at Willow at harvest at whatever you want to point fingers at. Uh, but use it as a time as a mirror. And so that's what this author does. He says, as we venture to explore all the layers to this Willow Creek story, we must humbly start with ourselves. Here are seven 
questions to begin with. All right. So I'm going to read the question and then you just answer uh, them. Before you do, I, I want to give props for props. This is written by uh, my buddy Rich for Lotus, and he is the lead pastor at New Life Fellowship. He's a guy, he's a pastor, an author, and a guy that does a lot of really great work like this. Yeah. If you recognize that name at all or you don't, go look at his writings because I think he has tremendous wisdom That's for awesome. the local church level. Why is that name sound familiar? Did we have him on one time? Or no? I don't think so. I don't think so. Maybe we're mutual friends. Let me look <laughs> while you read this question. So Rich, he asks this. The first thing that he says of the seven is this. As a pastor, am I living in the truth? Are there any areas in my life where I'm not living with integrity? He says integrity is not about living something perfectly, but wrestling with something faithfully. Well, oh, that good. preaches. As pastors and leaders, there is no substitute for honestly confronting the lies and illusions that distort our lives. Do I truly have a life with God in prayer? Am I rooting myself in practices that ground me in God's love? Is my life with God one of confession and repentance? And he writes, as Ron Rollheiser has said, we are never more healthy than when we are confessing sin. How about that one? That's good. I love that opening. Integrity is not about living something perfectly, but wrestling with something faithfully. That is so good because I think this like, perfect mentality is often what keeps us kind of couched in shame. So if you're like, Oh shoot, I made a mistake or I fell short or whatever. I have to hide this from everybody because I'm the leader and I'm the, or I'm the pastor or whatever. And if anyone knew that, then my credibility is out the window or I'll never recover from this. Absolutely. Confession is one of those things that sounds great in the radio studio, but when it comes to actually doing it, it's hard. It's so painful at times, but so it's so life giving. Probably something going good. on here. We've talked about this like three times now yeah. this week. So, yeah, geez, Louise, what do you have going on in your life? You talking I about? just, no. uh, it's mostly about you. Um, <laughs> number two, number two. Do I have friendships that help me face my dark side? Mm. Related to number one, the Willow Creek debacle is an invitation to have friends on the journey with whom we can be honest and who can be honest with us. We've often talked about like. Yep. The friend that will tell you you have spinach in your teeth, mm-hmm. right? That's that's a loving thing to do. Do we have friends who speak the truth and love to us? Do we make the time for soul care relationships that provide a context for repentance? And that's another convicting one, it's especially one. if you're like a pedal to the metal leader or or you just got a lot going on. To be honest, a lot of us just have a lot going on. And uh, I think the making time for soul care thing sometimes is really undervalued in our American context. Cause it doesn't feel like it's productive, yep. you know, like, oh, what, yep. are you, what are you doing? Oh, you're being cared for yep. There's stuff to do. You know, I just, I think it's a really good one. Number three, am I submitting myself to authority willingly, joyfully and transparently? Mm. Well, if you had to add those qualifiers, <laughs> <laughs> submitting myself reluctantly through exactly. gritted teeth. He says, I would be lying if I told you I do this joyfully. I don't like being told what to do. I want to call the shots. I want to inform people, not ask for permission. Yet this has been one of the most important safeguards for my leadership and pastoral life. I'm grateful to report to an elder board that asks hard questions monthly. I'm grateful that they are not impressed with me. My perfectionism (laughs) is clearly seen, yet deep down inside, I know God's protecting me uh, through these uh, people. So uh, am I under authority? Are there people that are going to call me out when I'm off base? Again, a hard one, especially for hard charging people. Uh, who like to lead and like to be up front, it could be hard to be under authority. But when you're not, uh, you're in big trouble. And especially those of us, you and I both in non-denominational churches, uh, you got to sometimes work hard to make sure these safeguards are there. Well, and I like the line he said, too, about uh, being grateful for leadership that's not impressed with him, which does kind of expose some of the dark part of like being an upfront leadership in general is there's often like a like a quiet voice in the back of your head that, you know, wants the recognition or wants mm-hmm. that that often is I think why so many leaders and pastors and preachers fall so hard is because they just kind of 
were clamoring for the spotlight and yep. uh, having people like, hey, man, well, I'm not impressed. Yes, yes. <laughs> Number four, this is a great question. What are the limits, time, energy, power, money that I'm currently violating? Our souls are in danger when we go beyond our limits. That'll preach. One could argue that this is the essence of sin as seen in the Garden of Eden. God set a limit and humanity willfully crossed it. Whenever we go beyond our limits, we're entering into Satan's territory. What are the limits that we're violating? Are we working nonstop? Ugh. Are we mismanaging money? Are we abusing power? Are we playing the role of God? Are mm. we taking Sabbath? Are we playing with our children? Do we have a life outside of church work? It's no secret that the Willow culture was one that didn't really integrate healthy rhythms. It's no secret that most churches are the same. This this whole article is preaching so much more than I was anticipating. I know. I know. Number five, as a pastor, where do I feel entitled? He talks about when he became the pastor at New Life Fellowship, his predecessor told him, congratulations, you can't park in the parking lot anymore. And that this shocked him. He said, I'm called to lead my congregation in serving. Now, certainly this can be taken to another extreme where pastors are not sufficiently cared for, encouraged and supported. But at the core of this question is entitlement. That one is convicting. Well, do you, you recognize that name that you, yeah. uh, so yeah. Pete, Pete Scazzaro writes about emotionally healthy leadership and emotionally yeah. healthy relationships. So to have someone in leadership like that, who also has the intelligence to say, to ask those types of hard, yeah. you know, seemingly, uh, insignificant questions is really good. People like to think pastors are like, like, Oh, I just want to serve people. We, it's really easy to be really entitled. Like, what can you give to me? What am I what owed right, to me? And right. that's, a, that's a hard one. And that's each plateau it brings like a different level of yes. uh, of awareness, I think, for that. Number six. What do we say? We got seven. Number six. Yep. Do I have seasons of therapy to grow in self-awareness? Therapy is a gift. I'm going to say that one again. <laughs> therapy is a gift. I've seen this in my 10 years being a pastor at New Life. When I came on staff, I had a physiological, physiological psychological assessment done which revealed a lack of empathy that needed significant work. As a mm. part of my pastoral rule of life, I was required to grow in self-awareness, benefiting from the professional expertise of wise therapists. I'm convinced that every pastor needs seasons of therapy. The level of projection we receive, a power at our disposal, and stress we regularly carry require rhythms for growth and self-awareness, lest we misuse our power. That is mm. so good. It's really good. And then number seven. If married, does my spouse have space to share with the leadership of our church how things truly are at home? That's so good. As married pastors and leaders, we are called to lead from our marriages. Moreover, as Christian married leaders, the goal of a good marriage is not about maintaining a basis for ministry. Marriage is to be the basis for a life rooted in deep, intimate, covenantal love from which we are formed by God, out of which we lead others. Come on. Come Come on. on. That's just great. And so he's basically asking, does your spouse have the ability uh, to speak about how you're doing at home or and maybe you, not even the ability, the invitation, the that's proactive what I mean, the invitation. invitation. Like, yep. come on, we want this feedback because you hear often when people fall in ministry, oftentimes there was, there were signs of it, obviously at home. That's where it was coming apart. So man, I don't know. What do you do with these? These are, these are, <laughs> these I are re- convicting. I read them over and over again and I tape them to my bathroom mirror so that I can remember the wisdom. This is, I'm so, I'm just so grateful for rich. This is really good. It's really good. So that was deep. And now, now we're going to go into the insanity. Oh, I can't wait. We are going to land this plane the way we always do uh, with some crazy stories we found on the Internet. That's how we're going to end today's show. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the Internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. 
And we are back. <laughs> wow. Welcome back to the I'm comic. I'm good. impressed with your rejoins today. Yeah, ever since you told me that, I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty uh, the same on them. I'm going with all over the place. I said reliable. I said that I, I said had reliable. a positive spin. <laughs> like a good economy car. Very good. You're like a geoprism, Brian Brown. That's, just, <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Anyway, you've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, and we end the show the same way every time. Crazy stories that our producers, uh, producer John, otherwise known as PJ, mm. and <laughs> Keith so Conrad, stuck. <laughs> uh, they, he's not happy behind the glass not. right now, uh, stories that they found, uh, fun sound that they found, usually from The Simpsons or something like that, and uh, all right, man, why don't you go first? Why don't I go first? Hawaii. Shark takes a big Ooh. bite out of Hawaii teenager's surfboard. The picture is terrifying. A 16-year-old Hawaii surfer said he had a lucky escape when a shark came up out of the water and bit a huge chunk out of his surfboard. Max Kalikipi. Kalikipi? What a, what a Hawaiian name yeah, right there. Right. Okay. 16 said he was surfing about 100 yards off of Makaha Beach about 7.30 p.m. Sunday when he spotted the shark's fin in the water next to him. That's a thing? You really spot the fin like that? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. He goes underneath the water, and I put my feet up on top of my board. I'm just sitting there looking around for it, and then, boom, it comes underneath me and bites my board. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. (laughs) No, thank you. Virginia. Man with gun, bourbon, arrested outside Pentagon. Hmm. Were you in Virginia? (laughs) Yes, I was. No. (laughs) Not a big fan of bourbon, though. Pentagon police say a Kentucky man with a shotgun arrived at the government facility last week and told officers he had driven through the night to attend to Liberty Business there. I'm attending to Liberty Business. (laughs) Charles Lawson of Pineville, Kentucky, was arrested and charged with unlawfully possessing a firearm after previously having been committed to a a mental institution. Court records say Lawson arrived the afternoon of August 6th, approached two Pentagon police officers, and made incoherent statements. It says police then questioned Lawson, who disclosed he had weapons in his car. Police searched his car and found a loaded 12-gauge shotgun, an 18-inch machete, shotgun shells, and a bottle of Jim Jim Beam vanilla bourbon. Lawson was hospitalized, and a doctor told the police that Lawson mentioned he was previously diagnosed with schizophrenia. Have you been drinking? I'm not drunk. Yeah, that story was kind of sad, though. I also want you to know that my uh, laptop will be updating later tonight. So, that's what that sound was. Uh, it makes me happy because usually it's me who hits a microphone or who's not hit anything. It just, <laughs> that is true. South Carolina alleged drunk driver didn't slam on brakes, crashes into brakes for less storm. <laughs> uh, suspected drunk driver in South Carolina allegedly lost control of his vehicle after failing to hit the brakes. And in an ironic twist of fate, his vehicle slammed into the front of a brake store. According to the Greenville Police Department, Montgomery, Alabama resident Jaderic Freeman was arrested this past Saturday after crashing his vehicle into a brakes for less storefront. Cops say Freeman was driving when he lost control of his vehicle and collided with another. The impact of the crash sent Freeman's vehicle into the front of the brake store, quote, damaging several more cars inside, police said in a Facebook post. The driver of the vehicle Freeman allegedly smashed into was transported to an area hospital for treatment of non-life-threatening injuries, according to police. Huh. That makes sense. <laughs> I wonder if that drop was for the reason... I, I didn't read the end of the article. The 21-year-old was charged with driving under the influence. Yeah, so yeah. that's probably where that drop came from. Next one, Florida... Man wears plastic bag with eye cutouts to rob bank. Oh, these pictures are outstanding. That's dangerous. A Florida man wore a plastic bag with eye cutouts when he robbed a bank in Wilton Manors on Tuesday morning. The bank robber walked into the We Florida Financial Credit Union, 
and demanded money. The FBI has not said how much money was taken. No one was injured. Still images released by the Miami division shows the suspect wearing a gray long sleeve with the words Calvin Klein on it, dark colored shorts, and a black plastic bag over his head. An additional photo was released showing the suspect without the bag over his head. He appears to have blonde hair and has glasses on. It's time to take out the trash. <laughs> you getting emotional back there? What was no, happening? I get the hiccups, which is a bad, <laughs> that is a bad thing to have during kickers. I was looking Did you hear down. me just keep like... <laughs> That I, was, uh, I was reading the article and I heard you, you crying. I looked up. I was like, "Wow, are you really?" There's no crying in kickers. <laughs> Gina Davis. Okay, Florida teacher tells class demonic energy coming from the bathroom. Oh boy! The Florida Department of Education said a reformed Rockledge High School teacher told his students demonic energy came from the bathroom. I wonder if it was because of the Impossible Burger uh, <laughs> that a student was. His spirit daughter, and he was another student's Ooh. spirit husband. Oh, boy. Things are getting bad. Edward Tardiff, 46, was also accused of holding meditation in his criminal justice uh. classroom. He teaches a criminal justice classroom during the school year, as well as trying to smoke with a student and contacting students on social media at inappropriate times. Tardiff said the district did not welcome him back to the classroom following that school year. Shocked. And he has not been a teacher since the state placed Tardiff on probation for two years, and he cannot apply for a teacher certificate for five years. Could it be? <laughs> see, I thought that story would have been a lot more funny if he was just coming out of the bathroom going, ah, oh, demonic energy in there. Oh, see, I knew we were going to go there, Brian. We had such a good show oh, before that, that moment. That was the cherry on top right there. <sighs> right there. My hiccups are gone, too, so that's good. Well, praise be to Jesus. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you for joining us. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Join us tomorrow on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life.